you're listening to High Temperature Times, a one-stop shop for refractory news and knowledge. My name is Griffin Patterson, and I'm an application specialist with Harbison Walker International. There are a lot of paths we could take when talking about refractory technology. Some episodes we talk about the latest insulation technology, while others we hit applications or product types. But one area I'm looking at spending a little more time on this year is mineralogy. Last month we talked about the raw material supply chain, but now we're going to start a short series looking at the different types of raw materials that go into refractories and why we use them. We're going to start this series off by talking about probably one of the most common yet diverse material classifications out there, aluminas. And to help traverse that rabbit hole, I'll be speaking with one of HWI's premier analytical research scientists, Stephen Wisniewski. But before we peer through the looking glass, let's crack open our technical marketing inbox. Remember, if you've got a question for the podcast, shoot us an email at technical-marketing at thinkhwi.com and use the subject line podcast. Today, we'll be fielding a question from John Monroe. How do I know which plastic consistency is best for my install? Great question, John. Plastic materials like Plastec or Foundry Pack are offered in firm, standard, and soft consistencies, which alter the workability of the material. The different consistencies are achieved predominantly by adjusting the water content when creating the plastic body. As such, when you're doing thicker linings, consider a firmer consistency to reduce the chance of steam spalling during dryout. Also consider firmer plastics for overhead ramming. On the other hand, soft consistency is well suited for hand packing. However, when in doubt, standard consistency is designed to have good workability for whatever installation it's needed for. Thanks for the question, John, and I look forward to whatever you throw at us next month. Now then, we're kicking off this year by digging deep into the soil, looking at all the different types of dirt we can find. Plot twist, there's a lot. So in order to wrap our heads around it all, we'll put it all into very appropriate buckets, starting this month with the aluminous bucket. In future episodes, we'll look at magnesia, zirconias, maybe silicon carbides, etc., etc. With me today to talk about aluminum materials is Stephen Wisniewski. Welcome, Steve. Thanks, Griffin. Happy to join in and be a part of High Temperature Times Chat with you. So you care to take a hot minute to tell us about yourself and your work with HWI? So do you have a red or a white hot minute? (laughs) Uh, But absolutely. Uh, As you mentioned already, uh, I'm one of the research scientists at HWI's Advanced Technical and Research Center, where I work in the analytical department. A lot of the work I do for the company involves assisting quality assurance, product development, in the brick or monolithic departments, can even do stuff with raw and finished good analyses, post-mortem analyses, and I'm also doing some work with uh, investigative science projects to help us, HWI, understand things a little bit better than we already do. To do all of this, really, I'm, and I'm going to throw out a bunch of big science words, so bear with me. I work predominantly using three different instruments, an X-ray diffractometer, I'm going to call it an XRD, X-ray fluorescent spectrometer, an XRF, and a scanning electron microscope coupled with energy dispersive spectrometer. I'll call that the SEM-EDS. So basically, I shoot the fancy rocks and dirt that cross my path with X-rays, and I can tell you exactly what it is composed of or how it works or how it looks, depending on the instrument. (laughs) When I was preparing for this episode, I commented to a colleague that HWI's analytical team is an astounding black box of knowledge. Questions go in, and answers come out, but what you do inside there is just practically black magic. 
I believe most of our listeners are intimately aware of our postmortem process that goes through analytical, but could you lay out some of the other capabilities that you have? Of course. Uh, let me just say that ATRC has a wide array of testing capabilities. It's almost on par with a third-party lab. And in reality, it's kind of a scientist's dream in industry to have such a wide array of instrumentation available to us. But to speak to the capabilities we have, it's overarching. On a broad overview, we do chemical analysis, mineralogical analysis, particle size analysis, and thermophysical property analysis. Now, for the chemical and mineralogical analyses, we use instruments like the XRF, the SCM-EDS, both of which I oversee. Uh, We also use the ICP-OES, Inductively Coupled Plasma Optical Emission Spectrometer. Big ol' acronym, even longer name. We also have a total carbon sulfur analyzer. For mineralogical stuff, we have um, our XRD, and we even have a loss on ignition uh, instrument capabilities. Um, As far as like the high temperature and physical property analyses that we do here, there are things like thermal expansion, creep, cold crush strength, particle size distribution, bulk specific gravity and then that's just skimming the surface we have a bunch of other techniques that i haven't even mentioned too (laughs) i could probably carry on even more yeah thinking through it like now that i've you know mentally walking through the lab it's it is on par with a lot of the university research equipment that's out there right so definitely you're doing the same amount of work that that you know blue sky scientists are doing it at universities Mm -hmm. oh gosh yeah Speaking of college, in my far too many years in college studying in ceramics, I I can't think of a single time when we really talked about mineralogy of ceramic materials. You know, sure, a couple key words were thrown out here and there, like tabular or mollite, but, you know, we're always thinking, like, just straight off percentage of alumina. That's all that matters. So I got to ask, how did you learn about all the nitty gritties and the mineralogical side of things? I mean, honestly, I never had any formal ceramics education myself. Uh, My education and general background is in chemistry. My degree is in chemistry. Uh, But my previous experience comes from my undergraduate research time under Jennifer Aiken at Duquesne, um, where I synthesized and analyzed diamond-like chalcogenides. From my almost three years of working with Dr. Aiken, and honestly, she was the best, I used literally the same exact instrumentation there as I do now. So it translated to a much smoother transition than uh, a lot of people were expecting when I began working for the then ANH refractories, now HWI for over seven years. But to get back to the ceramics part of it, I mean, a lot of my current knowledge nowadays came from on-the-job discussions with numerous HWI employees across all of our technical departments. And let me tell you, there have been plenty of discussions. <laughs> uh, even even now, I'm still learning new things and becoming familiar with more and more of our very broad product portfolios since I look at and touch every market segment in one form or another at some point. Yeah, sort of one of the the idioms I told myself when I was going through school is like, 
college doesn't teach you how to do your job. It teaches you how to learn to do your job. Exactly. Anyways, rather than just run the gamut of materials from fancy dirt to highly engineered particulates, I'll try to just stick with the fun questions and keep things light, lest we talk here all day. But I guess I'll start off with the dirtiest of refractory dirt we have, which is fire clay. Could you define fire clay from a mineralogical perspective? It's one of those materials that doesn't necessarily follow a strict compositional definition, like some of the other materials we have, such as andalusite. Yeah, so compositionally speaking, um, fire clay honestly is a kitchen sink of elemental oxides, as well as hydrated phases. Mineralogically, we'll discuss more on an atomic and structural level. So honestly, get your glasses ready. It's going to get a little nerdy. On that mineralogical basis, uh, we really have to look at how all of the elemental components are bonded and how they are structurally bound to one another, especially anytime we're speaking to solids. At the most fundamental level, there are two types of solids, crystalline and amorphous. Crystalline solids are solids that have what's called long-range order. So what does that mean? Having long-range order means that on a structural level, you are going to have the exact same and repeating units of elemental bonds in every direction until the mineral can no longer grow or form these bonds. If you look at one small area of this structure, you can transpose it to another area and it will line up exactly, or at least it should. But amorphous solids, on the other hand, have something coined short-range order. This is the exact opposite as long-range. So there are no repeating structural units, bond distances are not consistent, etc. And you would not be able to transpose one section of an amorphous solid structure over another section. And that's kind of my soapbox on long and short-range order. But clays themselves, uh, we can kind of think of them as partially amorphous or maybe even uh, minimally crystalline until we fire them. Now, from how I'm coming to this conclusion is this determination is from my experience and time analyzing these materials with the XRD. So when we're procuring a clay-like fire clay, This is how to think of it on a mineralogical standpoint. Partially amorphous, minimally crystalline. On the XRD, we usually see very crisp, tall, thin peaks, which indicates to us that the product being analyzed is crystalline. Yeah, so to put that into, you know, what people who aren't familiar with XRD might see is is you look at a graph and it has these peaks that for every mineral, those peaks would always be these sharp lines show that it is this material. So in an amorphous material, you would get this amorphous hump with basically no peaks whatsoever. In a minimally crystalline amorphous material, you would get this amorphous hump, but you might start to see some peaks jut out of there, right? Yeah, exactly, as as you said it. If it's nothing but amorphous material... As you said, all we're going to see is this light, nice little hill and hump that's pretty typical across any and all amorphous materials that we analyze. But in crystalline materials, you would see no hump whatsoever. 
and you would just see these peaks which represent the material that you're looking at. Yes, and each individual mineral or crystalline material, um, based on their long-range order and how everything is organized in that structure, we're going to get, quote-unquote, fingerprint set of peaks. So anytime we see mullite, all of those peaks are going to be exactly in the same spot in a given intensity ratio of one another. Anytime we see corundum, same thing. Anytime we see cristobalite, which is silica, same thing. Things of that regard. So definitely right, Griffin. So moving away from XRD, if we were to kind of look at these under the SEM, the clay would kind of look more along the lines of a mud with some fine particulates in it. Uh, But the fire clay aggregate, though, um, we will have a high degree of internal or closed porosity. So we might see some empty voids within a given aggregate, uh, size depending on just how much water content there is whenever it was fired, if it was fired, unless it came out as an actual aggregate from the ground. But also the fire clays are heterogeneous aggregates, so you can clearly see one area is different from another. It's not a nice mixture of, say, cinnamon sugar where you can't distinguish the cinnamon from the sugar. It's all a light brown in that regard uh, for that example. I think that speaks leagues to the uh, quality control group and qualifying raw materials and, and making sure that they're suitable at this ratio for this mix. Oh, definitely. So just to really nail it in and, and, and make sure I'm understanding you correctly, if you were to scoop some dirt out of our mine in Missouri, some fire clay dirt, it wouldn't look like really anything useful in your equipment. But after it's calcined or processed or fired and made into the refractory grade dirt at our plant in Fulton, you would be able to get some useful information out of it. We would definitely get some knowledge from it, that's for sure. Moving up the ladder, things get a little more interwoven. I'd like to talk about a certain 57% alumina that people love the chemical and thermal shock resistance for, but I guess I need to expand on that with a little something more. Steve, can you tell me about the mullite precursors like andalusite, kyanite, and, and I guess silimonite, uh, and then the similarities in between them? Yeah, so these minerals and their relationship to one another are actually really interesting on a mineralogical standpoint. In the crystallography world, they are what we call polymorphs. So polymorphs are minerals that have the same chemical formula, in this case Al2SiO5, but they have different crystallographic structures or they occupy different space groups, as we call them when we talk about crystallography. Uh, Space groups are a bunch of symmetry operations that define how the structure and bonding, such as the long-range order that I spoke to a little bit ago, is how they're all oriented. And there are 230 (laughs) unique combinations out there as potential classifications. And each of these falls under a different space group, which is how they are considered polymorphs. So the andalusite is one space group, the kyanite is another, and the silimonite is a third of these 230 space groups. Now, in reality, even though we have a chemical formula of Al2SiO5, their similarities kind of end there. 
when you investigate more heavily properties such as thermal expansion, they'll vary between these phases. Uh, these properties may or may not allow for substitutions as it may ultimately affect the final product, but that's when we have quality of new suppliers come in. I guess, you know, if I were to, to sort of postulate, you know, thinking about Andalusite, which is fantastic in thermal shock resistance, I believe that someone told me that well, the reason why Andalusite is so good in thermal shock resistance is it has these little micro cracks that sort of absorb the stresses from the thermal expansion and contraction. Mm-hmm. And that's because of the space group that it's in would suddenly have the room for these atoms to move around within the crystalline structure if I were to somehow put reality into a purely science um, theory. Thinking. It's hard to translate crystalline structure to grains. Yeah, because we're, we're trying to take something that's on the atomic level. And give it a micro macro and macro property. Yeah. Yeah. So um, it's... It's certainly a part of the equation for sure, Griffin. When it comes down to it, I think it's a combination of multiple things, such as the space group itself and then what elements are made up of it. Good thought, yeah. Trickling in even more Illumina, I've heard the words Malkoa and Boxitic kaolins thrown around a lot. I guess there's more complexity to the Malite category than we probably have time to get into. Can you give us the cliff notes on different types of Malite raw materials? Yeah, so uh, like you said, the Boxitic Kaolin is a clay that may contain a certain amount of Boxite within them, uh, which are mined and used within the industry. Uh, That being said, there are a lot of aluminosilicates that are or could be used as Malite raw materials. These boxitic kaolins are included under that umbrella. Now, to get to Mokoa, it's actually a brand and product of Emerus. Um, it's a mixture of mined minerals such as boxitic kaolins that are milled and extruded before firing to reach the desired chemistry, somewhere between 45 and 70% alumina. And then the fired extruded pellets are what we know and call Molkola. So these are these are preformed Molites. So these are already Molite when they go into the refractory material. Uh, from Emerus, ideally, yes. Okay. Unlike with the Andalusite and the Kyanite, these are precursors that will then become Molite. Correct. That's interesting. It seems like a lot of the aspects of the aluminosilica composition revolve around the Molite world. Either mullite precursors, or they form mullite with extra bits, or they're just mullite. If this were a video podcast, maybe I'd put up the the meme of the spaceman pointing the gun saying, wait, it's all mullite? Always has been. It makes me think about this unique thing that I learned recently about volume stability in aluminosilicate bodies. Because mullite forms around 2200 degrees Fahrenheit, many of the aluminosilicate monolithics will have a noticeable change in their PLC characteristics at this temperature. That could be good for things like combating creep, but it can also be a problem since the volume change can then lead to cracking in something like a precast shape. All right, last but not least in the alumina pool is the high purity aluminas like tabular alumina. The list of benefits on these materials is long, with standing temperatures up to 3400 degrees Fahrenheit in some cases, a good resistance to slags, resistance to chemical attack, so on and so forth. 
I know in certain ceramic industries, they're looking at like 99.999% alumina or 5.9 alumina. What kind of purity alumina does does the refractory industry use in going into products like, I don't know, like HP Cast Ultra or Greencast 94? Yeah. Uh, so probably the closest we're looking at to the 5.9's alumina, again, if we're strictly speaking alumina aggregate, um, the highest purities can definitely range from 99% alumina and up, depending on the provider that we use. Some of the alumina that we have that qualifies for that is white-fused alumina and tabular alumina. These two are the highest purity aluminas in the market that I've come across in my time at HWI. Uh, However, if I told you which alumina aggregate were in which products, I definitely have to call legal. So you mentioned two different types right there, white-fused alumina and tabular alumina as high-purity products. Are are there any more along those lines, and could you describe how they're different? As far as 99%, I really can't think of anything off the top of my head. But when someone thinks of white-fused, probably the next step is brown-fused alumina. So the brown-fused is still high-quality alumina. However, it's purity takes a little bit of a dip. I think we're probably looking somewhere between 93 and 95-ish percent alumina purity. And what you actually see between the differences in the white-fused alumina and brown-fused alumina is the white-fused only has these very, very fine pinhole kind of pock marks on the surface when I see a polished section, whereas brown-fused alumina is heterogeneous as well. So it has little pockets of uh, the precursor accessory oxides, whereas the white-fused alumina appears totally homogenous. So that's probably the closest I can think of. And now there's a bunch of other types of aluminas, but when we're strictly speaking aggregate, brown-fused is probably the next step down. So in that case, how do we get to these high performance but almost middle ground products like, say, Toughline 90 or Ultra Green SR that are not 99% alumina products? Yeah, so um, this all depends upon uh, what the product is composed of. So since these products are not quote unquote high purity products, these raw materials contain more than just alumina. Um This is really how we kind of reach these middle ground product purity lines through dilution of the alumina by adding other things into it to drive the alumina content down and even using lower purity aggregate. So what does that look like from an imaging standpoint? In the cases where you have two different raw materials used to get that necessary composition, can you clearly see the different structures in those or does it all eventually wash out as some middle ground look? In my seven years, I've definitely grown to understand what each aggregate may look like. Sometimes it's a question of, oh, is this white-fused? Is this brown-fused? Is this tabular? Et cetera, et cetera. But when it comes down to it, a lot of these aggregate do actually look different on a microscopic standpoint. Like I said before about the white-fused versus brown-fused, the brown-fused has little little pockets of impurities that are innate to the precursor material versus the white-fused. And 
it's all about the microstructure and being familiar with what is what as far as a microscopist standpoint. I think that's one of my favorite things about refractory technology is that it could take one material that has benefits A, B, and C and mix it with another material that has benefits X, Y, and Z. And somehow when they're combined, you manage to get the best of both worlds and the limitations of none. Of course, it's people like you and the rest of the brains at the Advanced Technology and Research Center that make it that way, but the performance tells the rest. Anyways, thank you, Stephen, for joining us this month. The challenging thing with the aluminosilicate world isn't the steady grade from fire clay to tabular alumina. It's everything in between. We haven't even touched on things like reactive alumina, bubble alumina, insulating aluminosilicates like vermiculite or hadite, alumina-based cements, fused alumina. Well, I guess we touched on that a little bit or any others that I forgot. Maybe we'll come back and touch on those in a later episode, but thank you so much, Stephen, for giving us our first insight into refractory mineralogy. The analytical group at HWI's Advanced Research Technology Center do wonders to keep the industry running under tougher and tougher conditions. And that's due in large part to the expertise and education of the people running it. If you'd like to learn more about alumina-based materials or any of the other products mentioned on the show, reach out to us at tactical-marketing at thinkhwi.com. Until next time, thanks for listening.